What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. How are you feeling right now? I mean, really feeling. Are you wired? Maybe you're tired. Did you sleep okay last night? Are you fasting? Stressed? Eating meat? Riding sugar highs? Suffering hormonal lows? How are your energy levels across the day? And what's your relationship with food really like? In this episode, we do a big old health check with Michelle Chevalier-Hedge, a nutritional medicine practitioner, Cure Cancer and Heart Research Institute ambassador, and best-selling author who consults to international corporations on optimising well-being and nutrition. Michelle's business, A Healthy View, has recently expanded to the US. She loves to present and write and talk, as you'll hear in this episode. And so along with her blog and Insta profile, she writes for Body and Soul, Huffington Post, Mamma Mia, Wellbeing and Mind Food, and has published several books, including Beating Sugar for Dummies, The Healthy Hormone Diet, and Eat, Drink and Still Shrink. Passionate, authentic and bursting with knowledge and great advice, Michelle is a wealth of information, vitality and inspiration. And she left us both thinking after this chat about the many small and really achievable changes that we can make to sleep better, find joy in food, manage our stress, like ourselves more, and even dial up our sex lives. So here is our high energy chat with Michelle. Michelle. Welcome to Human Cogs. It's great to have you here to have a chat today about health and all the other things we're going to deep dive. We all know that health and and general wellbeing is our own ultimate responsibility and we should optimise our health and make good choices, but so many of us don't. Now, you have said in the past that it often takes an aha moment to arrest us in our moment and and catalyse change. What was your aha moment? Well, I've had several of them, but in my book, Eat, Drink and Still Shrink, there is a very specific example of when I was working at Microsoft as a marketing manager, climbing the corporate ladder, ticking my KPIs, feeding my three children, my dumb dog, my messy house, and all the things that all normal people do. I remember one morning going to the mirror And so full of self-loathing over my bloated body, my poor sleep, my cortisol levels around my earlobes, that when I went to look in the mirror, I couldn't even look at my full self. I I went to the corner of the mirror, tilted my head to put my mascara on so I couldn't look at my whole self. Can you believe we do this as humans to ourselves? Mm. And, you know, Mads, one of the things that you just started with, I think, is a very curious topic that people ask me all the time. We're surrounded by this information around well-being right now, particularly now post-COVID, right, about mental well-being, emotional well-being, physical well-being. 
and we're exposed to it through all sorts of media. But why aren't people entering into that space? Why are people still sitting back and being reactive? And I know exactly why that this is. I've thought about this endlessly. It's because the average human, and I get it, believes that the space between where they are and to move into improvement is too far. They think that the gap is too big. And it's not. It's my job as a nutritional medicine practitioner to make it fun, to make the journey doable, to make the journey to just nudge the dial a little bit so much so that you go, oh, okay, I'm kind of doing this thing. I'm sleeping better. I feel better. My skin looks better. Do you think that this in some way, the pandemic you know, it was, it was a big F-bomb in everybody's life, of course, and interrupted all of our routine, all of our plans. If we think about the role of social media and, and di- the digital realm, where if people want to make that shift, that almost their aspiration, it's outsized to what's achievable because we see so many unattainable beauty ideals every day in our social feeds. Oh, we see so much pseudoscience. We see so much fake news or what I like to term white witchcraft. But I do have hope that the wellness industry, the health industry, the medical boards are snapping down and clamping down on those types of media outlets that are serving up those that fake news. And I think we have a generation that is become much more observant of evidence-based science and research. And I think perhaps maybe you both have seen in the two books that are sitting in front of us that I dedicate a lot of the proceeds of my books to Deakin University that specializes in what we call nutritional psychiatry, the relationship between food, mood, anxiety, depression, food, and the gut. Which is um, led by the work of Dr. Uh, Professor Felice Jacker. Is that who? Absolutely. She's one rock star of a human being. She? And she's just an amazing researcher with a fantastic team. And they don't have a lot of money. So I think it's wonderful for, I, I hope that more nutritionists get on board with this and start to back them because how else are we going to speak on a world stage unless we are presenting facts? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've told us, Michelle, that your background was in corporate and you were experiencing the stressors that many do in in their working lives. And then you made a career change and went back to retrain as a nutritionist. Help us understand actually what a nutritionist does and when would some of us or our listeners choose to to book in to see one? I would say 15 years ago, people would go to a nutritionist as a reactive measure. So they might have been diagnosed with insulin resistant. They might have had weight issues or some type of metabolic issues, cardiovascular issues, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. Those types of things are old school things that people went to a nutritionist for. Today, people come into our clinical practice every single day with anxiety, depression, mood disorder, polycystic ovary syndrome, cancer, weight issues, cardiovascular issues, purely no issues at all, but just want to be one step ahead of their well-being. How good is that? Yeah. You can name any medical condition and we see it all. I mean, we see polycystic ovary syndrome multiple times, so much cancer. You know, being overweight and obese, there's 16 cancers that are linked just to being overweight. Mm. 
not even obese. And you know, I don't like to talk that much about weight, you know, and I, I don't believe a nutritionist should focus as on weight um, as a big character of well-being. I believe it goes way out of that scope. Yeah, which is a really valid point. So so what is your lens on weight? So um, if anybody's ever heard me speak before, I always say this all the time, that weight, it only measures gravity. It does not measure somebody's good heart, their purpose, their zest, their spiciness, their balance. And I particularly love framing this when I'm in front of young females. You know, if I'm speaking at a school, I speak at corporates quite a bit, as well as schools sometimes. But when I am talking at a school and a group of, to a group of females, I will stop in the first five minutes and say, ladies, if you think I'm going to discuss weight at all, I just want to let you know right now that that is just a measurement of gravity. I want you to close your eyes and think about the fun girl. That is what I'm talking about with well-being. When I'm in a corporate workspace, when I'm talking about the healthy individual, I say, how about this for the healthy individual? The person that is hitting all their KPIs, communicating with their colleagues, doing some creative thinking, strategic thinking, walks out the door at 5.30 at night, gets home, and still has enough in their tank to communicate with the people they love. That, my friends, is true well-being. Mm, right? And that's true living a full life, isn't it? Totally. Except that so few of us do that. And certainly one of your books, Eat, Drink and Still Shrink, is you know, advocating for the idea that we should not be carrying excess weight because of the things that you've talked about. So what we know also is it's very difficult to shift weight. It's very difficult to shift behaviour, to shift our exercise patterns and then to shift stubborn weight, particularly as we move toward middle age and some of us potentially, you know, menopause and those sorts of things. So what is the role of hormones where we do look at weight gain, uh, particularly for those around the middle age? Mads, I love this question. This is a really important question. So if you're listening, everybody's ears on, please. (laughs) People think that they can become weight loss resistant or have stubborn weight loss. And they think that that is about food. And sometimes it is. It's when we're making poor food choices with processed foods, with added sugars and trans fats that can start to disrupt our glucose and therefore our hormone insulin. So let's call the hormone insulin our fat storage hormone. So if you say anything like insulin or glucose or weight, people often think food. Fair enough. Let's look at that in the number one scenario. But I also want people to think about the importance of sleep and stress on their insulin. So let's just go to sleep. Just by having poor quality sleep, inconsistent sleep, broken sleep, sleep that wakes you up at two o'clock in the morning, all of a sudden you're on the toilet bowl and you have monkey chatter going on. Where's Jake's soccer boots? Oh my goodness, did I turn the laundry on? My parents' anniversary is this weekend. And all of a sudden the monkey chatter starts and the inconsistent sleep. Just by having poor sleep, you can create glucose disruption and put yourself in insulin dysfunction. How will you know that you are? So, you know, obviously you're aware if you're having poor sleep, but how do you know you've got then this consequence that's occurring? What are the signs of 
insulin uh, okay so 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 thank you meds and I'll, can i just come back to that one more second so so you've got food as insulin disruption you've got sleep as insulin disruption i'm going to take you down one more path okay that can lead to stubborn weight loss wake up in the morning boom the alarm goes off gotta have a coffee quick gotta get to spin class oh, i'm gonna have road rage on the way to the spin class i'm angry i'm anxious all right get to work blah, blah, blah. and you're constantly going and going and going and going and what happens Inside, your adrenal glands take off. Your adrenal glands pump up your cortisol. Your cortisol biochemically goes, okay, pump out the glucose because there's a saber-toothed tiger coming at her. Well, there's no saber-toothed tiger coming at you. It's all in your head. Psychologically, what's going on is a saber-toothed tiger. Doesn't matter because cortisol is pumping out glucose, 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 and the body also becomes glucose dysfunction, insulin resistant. And if you put a little bit of poor food choices together with a bit of poor sleep, together with stress, boom, we've got the volcano of insulin resistant people, people that are gaining weight, stubborn weight loss. But people often don't realize those last two, sleep and stress, are as equally as important as your food choices. How do we see this with people as a nutritional medicine practitioner? We, of course, take people's health history, but also simple blood tests, look for glucose dysfunction, look for insulin dysfunction. We see these also when your body starts to get like that and you're constantly spiking insulin all the time, you're setting off inflammatory markers in the body. Mm. So we always want to lower um, inflammation. We always want to lower oxidation inside the body, things that you can't see, but we can see them on blood pathology. And I don't ever want anybody to wait till they're in full-blown diabetes. That's ridiculous. Let's get all this kind of stuff one step ahead, but still be able to have a bit of chocolate and wine and coffee along the way. So what would your top two tips be for managing or optimizing sleep and stress? Through a nutritional lens, let's just look. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts around that, and I write a lot about all of these things. But just through a nutritional lens, I think one of the things that people don't realize is throughout the day, we are eating a lot of added hidden sugars. And that hidden sugars can jack up our cortisol, leave us running hard, particularly those of us that run hard all day on our adrenals, a couple double shot lattes, afternoon, a handful of jelly snakes because our blood sugar's going down and we think, oh, I've got iron deficiency. Oh no, I just need some sugar, right? And when we get home and we're finally relaxing, we go, wait a minute, I, I, I worked hard all day. I am so, I've been so busy. I'm busy and deserving. I'm going to have some of those biscuits. I'm going to have a little bit of that. And we don't realize what we're doing is maybe putting on some added sugar. And when we're taking that added sugar on, we're spiking our blood sugar. People get into bed. They think, oh, I'm going to get a good night's sleep. And the next thing, monkey chatter. Next thing, tired but wired. So they're tired but wired. They're exhausted in the morning. Then they're making poor food choices. They then tend not to exercise. And the whole vicious cycle goes round and around and around. How do I know this? Because that used to be me. Mm. Mm. You know? So sh- sugar, 
sugar gets a bad rap, doesn't it? You know, and increasingly sugar, mm. it's become toxic, like this dark force. Why is sugar so bad for us in and of itself? Uh, You know, I come from an Italian background, so I love food and I never want to discriminate against anything, including sugar, right? So we love your sugar. Yeah. So I, I have a program called low sugar lifestyle and I make it. And when I speak about it, I say it is called low sugar lifestyle. It is not called no sugar lifestyle because I think anything extreme is, is, is going to make people run out of the house as if there's a fire in the house, right? That's ridiculous. And it feels like deprivation. Correct, yeah. and it's and it should all be about nourishment. Food should be about connection and joy, but it is the excess added sugar that we're having. So, our largest research body on sugar, the World Health Organization, the top researchers, uh, and Felice Jacka, Deakin University, maximum amount of sugar we should be having added sugars in our diet is six teaspoons a day. The average Australian is still probably having about 36. And it's it's really hard because you pick up a healthy looking yogurt and it's packed with sugar. You pick up a healthy looking smoothie, it's packed with sugar. Healthy muesli bar. What about those chai teas that have 10 teaspoons of sugar? Matcha green tea, 12 teaspoons. So there's a lot of it still lurking around. And what's happening, Madge, you asked a very good question. So why? What is that actually causing? Like, what's the big deal? Well, when we take in these added sugar, it goes into the gut and the gut biome goes, whoa, hold on. I'm going to make all the bad bugs have a party because all this sugar is just feeding the bad bugs. And the gut goes, boom. And all of a sudden we get this thing called candida, thrush, or disruption in the gut biome. It is the gut biome. That is the place where we create serotonin, our happy hormone, the very thing that we need or we go to a doctor for to help with depression, anxiety, and mood disorders. We can be improving it naturally when we clean up our diet with real whole food. There's a million other things that I can tell you about sugar and how it messes it messes completely with inflammatory markers. I mean, one of the greatest drivers of inflammation in the body is sugar. But for me, from my perspective, when we saw all this research coming out, I mean, we've known this as nutritional medicine practitioners for years. But when we finally saw coming out of Deakin University research, um, a randomized control trial called the SMILES trial, aptly named, right? Good name. First randomized control trial in the world that looked at eating real whole food, not expensive, not fancy pants food, right? Regular food that you buy from Coles and Woolies, 12 weeks on that study, those people actually came out of being clinically depressed not even not even mildly depressed how about that mm. like and at 12 weeks what are we popping in our trolley then at woolly so w- when we talk about you know there's a bad party going on in your gut we want to have the biggest crack and banger party in our gut that's good for us what whole foods then are we popping into our trolley i really want people just to keep a lens on 
whole foods, right? So really start to eliminate as much as you can a lot of the heavily packaged foods, processed foods. If you pick up something and you look at it and you go, wow, it's got like 20 ingredients that I can't even pronounce those names. That's what I call frankenfood. Like if your grandmother can't pronounce those ingredients, like why would you do that to your skin that you want to look good, your brain that you want to be thinking, your energy that you want to be going? Why would we do this to ourselves? Occasionally you go, yeah, what the hell? But for the majority of the times, picking up things like real vegetables, um, uh, real fruit, seeds and nuts, beautiful proteins, um, avocados, lots of fat. So I always like people to think in terms of where's your fat? Where's your avocado? Where's your olive oils? Where's your seeds and nuts? Where's your proteins? I don't care whether it's fish, whether it's legumes. So think about your proteins. So think about your fats. Think about your smart carbs. Where's your sweet potatoes? Where's your quinoa? Where's your brown rice? And to pull it all together because whole foods and moving into a whole foods diet, it it sort of brings your shopping trolley a little bit tighter, right? But a way to expand that is spice up your life. Start to get crazy with spices. Buy all sorts of spices. And if you buy a spice and you don't like, give it to your neighbor, right? Like start sharing spices with people. (laughs) Get olive oils that have lemon. Get olive oils that have garlic. Like start to get crazy because this is what happens in my house. My kids think I'm crazy, which I am. um, (laughs) So like I'll buy chicken, right? And, And one night I'll make it and it might be Indian, you know, and I might have baked it with Indian spices. Well, the next night, I might have the same chicken with Thai spices. Two nights later, I might have it with Italian spices. Look at kids. Hey, right? Chicken <laughs> dinner. Yeah. So, but it's, but it, it is about getting creative, but you, not so creative. It's a really, really important message for all people. We don't have to get so creative with a recipe. I mean, if you look at any of our recipes, we have hundreds of free recipes. There's never more than 10 ingredients. There's always a way to turn it into lunch the next day, right? Cook once, eat twice. And if it's not tasty, healthy, and affordable, it's not in any of my books or on any of our social media, because who's going to do something and make it a consistent habit if it's not tasty, if it's not easy, and it's mm. not affordable. Well, this is why we see often like it's very difficult that behaviour change, especially in, if you're in a family, having to cook and, and eat as a family. Um, so how do you make it sustainable but also affordable? I'm wondering as you talk about all of this, and it sounds like, can I come for chicken sometime at your place? I'll come on the Thai night, thank you. Um, What about, there's been a huge uptick recently in things like the 5-2 diet or intermittent fasting and and a deprivation, if you like, shift toward uh, um, uh, that side of, of dieting, let's call it. What's your view on that and portion control where we think about those things in, the, in a whole food diet. Sure. Okay. So let's let's just start with all the different diets out there, right? Um, one of the diets that you didn't mention is the breatharian diet. Do you know about that one, Matt? No, that it sounds you, really it, you eat Wait, Well, apparently there is a diet no. called the breatharian diet, but I'm joking when I say that, but there's all these different diets out there. But let's just talk about the types of diets that are around the concept of intermittent fasting. So intermittent and fasting has been around for hundreds of years, traditionally used by endocrinologists, right? Doctors who studied metabolism, cardiovascular health, particularly looking at people's insulin and glucose disruptions, 
diabetes and things like that. That's really where intermittent fasting started. It's a primitive hangover from our primitive times when yeah. we would like feast or famine. Yeah, correct. You'd, you'd be able to feast on the big yak. I don't know if you killed yaks in that time, but, you know, and then you would have no food source for a while and so it was really based on this feast or famine pattern of food. That's correct. And then as scientists started to look more around the metabolic system of humans Mm -hmm. and our biology, one of the things that became very apparent with people who had insulin and glucose disruption was using fasting to make your insulin receptors more sensitive. So basically, from la- from a layman's perspective, just thinking about if you had a straw inside a cup, the straw is like an insulin receptor and you want glucose and nutrients coming into the cell, right? So with intermittent fasting, what you would do is you would allow that straw to get wider and become more receptive to take all the nutrients into the cell. So intermittent fasting was used for that. So traditionally it was used 14 to 16 hours of a true fast. These days, it's manifested in itself into all sorts of versions. There's the 16-8, where people eat for an eight-hour window. There's Michael Mosley's 5-2 diets. There's his 800 diet. And Michael Mosley and I have um, spoken a, a bit about this. When my book, Eat, Drink, and Still Shrink, was coming out, we were doing a speaking engagement together. And um, he said to me, Michelle, do you use my books in your clinical practice or at speaking engagements. And I said, Michael, I love all the science around everything that you do. I've learned so much from him and he's very gracious, generous and evidence and I love. I said, but Michael, the kind of clients that I'm talking to are people that are high energy. They're often working. They're often trying to still critically think, strategically think, creatively think at three o'clock in the afternoon. If those people are fasting, they're not using their brain and their energy as productively as they possibly can. If I was speaking to other people, perhaps I would be recommending your types of things. But Michael, if I personally only ate 500 or 800 calories a day, I would be trying to bang into the vending machine or kill somebody at four o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) And he laughed. He said, Michelle, I really get it. We do in our clinical practice use intermittent fasting occasionally. And how we use it is we have people eat breakfast, lunch, afternoon tea, and then do their fast in their in the evening. Not if they're a mother and not in front of their children, because I don't think that that is a good message to be sharing with our children, if that's the case. Or, they, or a father. Uh, or a father, home. correct. Thank you, Mads, for reminding me of that, of course. So then they might do their intermittent fasting in the morning. Now, that can be very effective on an insulin receptor and people that have insulin dysfunction and for weight loss, very effective. But what we will see in the news in the next 12 to 18 months is intermittent fasting used for cognitive decline or cognitive health more so than we will for weight loss. As in to optimize your cognitive Correct. health. Correct. And so what's an example of that? When will we be, when will we, that window all occur? That, all that research is just about to come out and come down the pipeline around how important it is. It's about our neuroplasticity. It's about growing our neuroplasticity. When I wrote my first book, Beating Sugar Addictions for Dummies, we actually had to stop print on that book because the Journal of Neurology, now this is eight years ago, came out with 
type 3 diabetes and its connection to vascular dementia. So in the same way we have type 2 diabetes and it affects our eyesight and our kidneys, it's clogging. It's creating something called glycation in the vascular network of our eyes and our kidneys. What they're saying is this type 3 diabetes, sugar overload, added sugar, glucose dysfunction, is doing the same type of glycation or clogging in the vascular network in our, of our brains. So really interesting research that's coming out, particularly if you're sitting with a family history of Alzheimer's, dementia, early onset dementia. Not that this is going to be the only pathway to better health, but hey, why not try? What might that window look like to maximize cognitive health? I think the research, Sabina, that we're going to see on cognitive health and nutrition is about to explode. One of the gifts that COVID has given us is made us realize that COVID as gifts as a nutritional medicine practitioner is that people have now realized that COVID isn't going to go away. There's going to be different versions of COVID. There's also going to be different vaccinations. And it has made people curious and science curious to go, how do we build our own immune system naturally? How what is how do we improve our sleep? And so there's the research in this space is going to be extraordinary. So Sabina, did I answer your question on that? Well, I was just trying to make sense of it through the intermittent fasting lens that will there be a particular time frame in the 24-hour cycle that will help optimize cognitive health. I don't know for sure about this, Sabina, but the research that I have looked at, it will be similar to the research that is the proper evidence-based research on intermittent fasting, which is really having a 12 to 14 yeah. hour, hour window where we don't ha spike our glucose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're seeing the rise of these um, continuous glucose monitors and much more observation around what is going on with our glucose mm. for so many reasons. There's a bunch of startups that are trying to solve for that, actually, with little devices. Absolutely. Um, little wearables that are measuring uh, constant levels of, of glucose. That's right. We've talked about, uh, well, I talked about us eating yaks, uh, whether we <laughs> ate yaks in primitive foods, don't know. Meat has got a bad rap in mm. recent times as well. There are some studies that indicate that it can reduce depression or anxiety. Let's go there. Let's unpack yes. that around red meat, the role of red meat. When we're talking about um, red meat, we're actually looking and seeing studies that grass-fed red meat actually now is having more good fats, more good omegas in it than fish. This is bizarre to, really? to to somebody like a nutritional medicine practitioner because you'd always in the past, you know, encourage people to be having fish for their omegas. Well, now, of course, finding fish that isn't farmed is very difficult. Mm. But where we're seeing these omegas turn up is in grass-fed beef. But what we know about beef and red meat is that it contains high levels of iron that is really well absorbed in the human body, and B12. Now, I do a talk called Mental Health Hijackers that can be lurking in your food. And it's just to take a kind of different lens on we've got this 
sad epidemic of anxiety, depression, and mood disorders. Let's get really curious about it and let's look at if we have an excess of nutrients or a deficiency of nutrients, can it cause some disease states that make somebody feel really down, Mm. really exhausted, exhausted. So symptomatically, they look like they're depressed, right? So in my talk, Mental Health Hijackers Could Be Lurking in Your Food, I talk a lot about vegans and vegetarians. And I, again, I say, I never like to discriminate against anybody, not, not, not even bread. I'm being, I'm Italian, but I even have a <laughs> vegan daughter, right? Here's what people just need to be curious about in that space. When People have low B12 and low iron. There's very big biochemical pathway links to depression Mm. and anxiety. And I will tell you from a clinical practice, young females, we see 19 out of 20 young females come in with low ferritin scores and say, I feel like I'm treading water. I'm struggling all the time. Even when I get sleep and enough sleep, I I can't concentrate. I have brain fog. I'm not myself. I don't even like myself. I don't even want to go out with my friends anymore. And they've been talking to their GP about pharmaceutical medication. And I'm all about supporting pharmaceutical medication when we need it. Absolutely. I come from a family of, of doctors and medicine and et cetera, my colleagues. You ask people to look at their blood pathology, and if they are low on B12 and low iron, they're often just low. You have to supplement those people that are vegans and vegetarians, and you give them a good supplementation, get them eating well within their parameters of being vegan and vegetarian, you can change their whole world in four weeks. What's your view as a clinical psychologist as you listen where we talk about depression and anxiety and some of these are really significant mental disorders? What's your view? Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind or in my gut <laughs> that there is a significant link between um, the mood and the and the gut. And a lot of people don't recognise that or they're not familiar with that research. But clinically, I couldn't count how many times people talk to me about having um, gut disorders or um, skin disorders, or aches and pain, insomnia. So then they haven't come to me with that with that as their primary issue, but they talk a lot about their gut. I'm actually even aware of people, uh, I guess I'm, you, you become quite in tune to the way people sit and the way they breathe and the way they even hold on to their body and even gurgling of tummies. And so I, I've started to just, like, just over the years, mm. notice a lot of gut issues and hear a lot of gut stories. And develop your gut instinct. And develop my <laughs> gut instinct, correct. <laughs> boom, boom. Um, in people that have come with the, you know, seeking help or support around symptoms of anxiety and depression. And it's frightening when we look at the statistics, right, of, of mental health right now. And I always say mental health is scary, often silent, and it's multifactorial. Yes. If we can improve somebody's well, mental well-being, the tiniest percent. Yes. yes. Well, we're winning with our fork, right? Yes. So why yeah. not try? Yeah. When winning there's no with harm. our fork. I, like I mean, and for, because um, practitioners of all of all degrees are trained in their own siloed expertise. Mm. 
we often don't get this cross fertilization of ideas. So as a patient or as a client, you on, you only get a certain amount of information from each practitioner and that puts the onus on the individual to kind of shop around and try and join the dots themselves. And that's really onerous on someone who's already exhausted, sleep deprived, um, down, anxious, wired, tired, all of it. Mm, absolutely. So, you know, my, my fantasy would be where there was um, better training across the disciplines and we've talked to our other uh, one of our other guests Michelle Woolhouse about this too so that people were hearing it repeatedly from mm. a, a whole host of different practitioners and then mm. it would just it makes also, sense we, and feels we so join normal. the dots and then yes. you start to see mm. in, in what it, what are correlated what are in parallel as you were talking I was just thinking as we think about the relationship between uh, mental health and sometimes they sit in clinical silos and we don't understand the whole picture mm. um, that even if we look at things like autism and ADHD and we've seen obviously a, a huge spike in diagnosis in recent years there is a lot of evidence to say that exposure to metals mm. through our food often can um, you know there is some causative factor there so yeah, I also hope we start to sort of break down those walls between the disciplines to understand the relationship yeah. uh, f- for a whole person around what they're eating, how they're sleeping, all the things you're talking about. Yes, mm. and, I, and I'm a great believer that that change is happening. Yes. I've just before COVID, I went to an event in New York City and some of the doc- top doctors in the world were at this conference and they were sitting in a panel up the front and it was one of the top cardiologists, one of the top neurologists, one of the top oncologists one of the top neurologists, and the top neurologist got up, took the microphone, and he looked out in the audience, and there were all of us were nutritional medicine practitioners, and he said, it is impossible for any of us now up here on this panel to do our modality without all of you. Yes. Yes. Because, you know, it it is, it's the whole person approach. Yeah. Yeah. And it has been dismissed you know there's been sort of alternative medicine we used yes. to hear that a lot and uh, or, or woo woo or, or yeah you know mm-hmm. if it wasn't anchored in western evidence-based medicine but increasingly as our bodies of re- research become more robust well then hopefully the two spheres will will meet can i bring us back to sleep the ever sure. important part yes. of, of our day yes. uh, or our nights that Please. we often don't um, give enough responsibility for how we are what does a good night's sleep look like? You talked earlier about what a crap mm. night's sleep looks like. What does a good night's sleep look like? You know, people ask us all the time, and actually if you've researched that, there's no definite on that. But I would say from my lens, it would be for people listening, I'm trying to think of the audience that is listening to this in the age, is seven to eight hours sleep that is consistent right? So that it is not broken, getting up, going to the bathroom, writing lists, making notes, right? So seven to eight hours. So some of the benefits of this is we're actually seeing people who have vaccinations that have higher levels of antibodies after vaccinations just from one week of good sleep. Now, we haven't seen the evidence-based research on that with the COVID vaccination yet, but we know that to be true with other vaccinations. Is that not extraordinary? Well, sleep is when our body heals itself and all our computers turn on if we're having good sleep, doesn't it? And and rat around. But we also know, um, and not everyone listening will be in their middle life, I certainly am, hello, I'm 50, um, is that your sleep is not continuous and uninterrupted often. You might need to get up to go to the loo or you've got to 
bloody partner snoring or whatever's going on. What, what's good enough sleep then? First of all, I always talk about this, whether it's nutrition or sleep, is hashtag no guilt. Hashtag we can't fail at this stuff. We just tr- keep trying to nudge the dial. One of my big tips on sleep, now this sounds ridiculous, and people listening are going to go, mm, and then they're going to try it and they're going to go, Wow. I love people to drink lots and lots of water, right? From the time you wake up in the morning, I want you to be consuming water, sparkling water, bit of mint, bit of lemon, lime, squeeze a blueberry in it. I don't care what you do. No diet soft drink. I dislike that immensely. And I want you to drink your way till four o'clock in the afternoon. Come four o'clock, I want you to have very little liquids. Why? Because I want you to preserve every bit of your sleep as much as possible and not have to wake up to go to the loo because it is the waking up to go to the loo that often disrupts people. Hmm. So that's just one simple hack. The other thing is no blue lights an hour before you go to bed. So that means no screens, no scrolling, no looking, no no getting hijacked on your Instagram feed. We know that those blue lights are what we call a melatonin vampire. I think if this is correct reduces your melatonin production, which is our sleep hormone, by 87%. I could be wrong on that, but it'd be pretty damn close. So reducing those blue lights, being aware of your added sugar consumption, you know, particularly no added sugar after after your evening meal, and reducing those blue lights. How about this for a fact? The Lancet Journal in 2019, one of the articles that they wrote was, night shift working, a carcinogenic activity. Mm. I looked at that and I went, holy heck, that should be on the front cover of the Fin Review. That should be on the front cover of all work journals. Because basically what was saying in that study is people with consistent disrupted sleep have more risk factors for cancer. That to me is extraordinary. You are such a wealth of knowledge, Michelle. And I have seen, we met on the speaking circuit, so I've seen you uh, on the stage. And it is just a pleasure sitting, listening to you, because our listeners can't see what we're seeing. Oh, but you, it's like playing charades, isn't it, Matt? Because sorry. Um, every time, I, 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 yeah, every time uh, Michelle tells a story, she acts it out <laughs> with her eyes closed and her hands moving. And we've seen all, like, I could almost tell what she's saying if I couldn't hear what she was saying. So I just had to, I had to call it on that. <laughs> Let's go to um, our final topic for today. Mm. And it is related to sleep, and yet it's not related to sleep. It's libido. Mm. Now, a lot of people will be asking you questions, as you've said, around weight and libido, and that they're talking about the parts of their life that they that aren't working, mm. which is kind of a medical lens of itself, isn't it? What's broken? How do we fix it? Which is not how you approach life, um, clearly. But talk to us about well-being and food as correlates of libido. I think it's such an important subject, Sabine, because I think that people avoid that conversation and I bring that conversation up quite regularly, whether it's with men or or women. And I think that libido is part of a natural, healthy sex life. And But I also am very aware with my health lens on a health practitioner lens that it does decline because our testosterone declines as men and women, our estrogen declines, all those hormones are shifting and that naturally is happening. But when we're eating well and we're sleeping well, we are 
preserving the amount of good hormones we have in our body. So that's number one. But most importantly, the conversation around libido comes down to this question. When we are eating poorly and we're stress eating, and then we are doing poor sleep, then we are not exercising, then we are not feeling good about ourselves. Forget about the the conversation around self-love. We barely even have self-like. How are we going to feel as humans, male or female, vibrant, joyful, intimate, wanting to connect on that level? So I love... Um, what I call nutritional transformation, where I help somebody or we help people move into a space of self-like. Because sometimes self-like is good enough. And just to get that little nudge of a doll to go glance in the mirror or wake up and feel that just a little bit of a shift, and it sort of starts to spiral up a little bit. And that is where intimacy starts to happen. Um, I also think for people not to be afraid to have a conversation with their doctor or their counselor about libido and, and that intimacy. And if you and your partner decide that isn't part of your world, maybe your intimacy is on a different level or in a different way. And that's totally fine. I feel that we won't go down the path on this, but perhaps we will another time around menopause. There's things that women are not, um, open to or aware of that is available to them to help increase their libido. I also think that men don't realize that testosterone is increased just by sleep. So there's these things that, that we can do if libido is on our radar. And I certainly think it is part of a healthy relationship. But perhaps when I'm 75, Stephen and I will have a different level of intimacy. I don't know yet. Yeah, baby. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I suppose. It, I mean, a lot of it is also that we spend so much time, it's a general comment, but certainly it's true of me, inside your head and not your body. Mm-hmm. Mm. So where we think mm. about a whole human, mm. it's so easy, especially if you're a knowledge worker, I suppose, is to just run around in your head all the time and feel quite disconnected from this thing that's holding your head up. Absolutely. And I know that very well, Mads, because mm. that was me. I was typical type A female, climbing the corporate ladder, leaving New York, came here for work. I actually fell in love with a man. That's how I ended up here. But I totally get that. And I feel so blessed that I made a career change into studying this because I was living all in my head. And I reflect back on that and I think, I would have headed for an explosion mentally if I had stayed on that path. And I remember when I came to a space where my head and my heart met and it was like an epiphany. It was like, wow, I can really use nutrition to transform all this monkey chatter, all this cortisol, all this stress, all this self-loathing. I can use nutritional transformation into the space of this person or these these people that I like the way they look and the way they move and the way they communicate. Do you ever fall back to the old you? For sure. Yeah. How do you manage that? For sure. When I back with my, I call my 
crazy Italian family in New York, the Chicarello Mafia. So my mother has six sisters, and they are all 12 to 14 months apart, and they all think that they're my Italian aunts. So when I'm there, we're in the whole Italian frenzy, and it's food, and it's joyful, and it's connection. It's just absolutely beautiful. My mom and her aunts will live forever because the power in well-being with connection, I mm-hmm. think, is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. We haven't yeah. even touched on that. Yeah. But sure, I fall back into that. And and you know what, what what's really changed for me from my twenties and my thirties to now in my late fifties? Hashtag no guilt. Mm. No guilt. I will go and have one too many wines, too much chocolate, very rarely too much coffee, up, uh, but too many pinots for sure. And I wake up in the morning and I go, nah, I was so in it. I had so much fun. Because I truly know the power of nutrition that you go, hey, I'm going to just get up, I'll get have some eggs this morning, balance my blood sugar, have a good day eating, I'll be back on track, probably be a little bit fuzzy this morning because I did something last night, but that's okay. Where we really fall as humans, but particularly women, whoa, get into the vicious circle, right? You have a big Friday night, you beat yourself up all day Saturday, we're good at that, right? Beat yourself up, starve yourself, only have water by two o'clock in the afternoon, you're gonna kill your partner, your children, and you can't even look in the mirror, right? And then you binge on everything that's around you. So I really, really love to take people down the path of, no more guilt. If you're going to have a pizza and a piece of cake and a cheesecake and a half a bottle of wine or heck, even a full bottle of wine, be in it. Enjoy it. Be with the people you're with. Embrace every second of that and trust that there's going to be tomorrow and you can get back in it. Mm. Mm. So have that reset. Well, you, as Sabina said, you've got a huge amount of research and, and live life and, and work behind you and you've spent a lot of time researching this, obviously, and spending time around incredible people to help shape your own thesis around change. We hope some of our listeners take some of these steps, including me, um, to think about how we eat and what we eat and how that becomes us. We like to end all of our chats uh asking our guests the same question, that is, who do you think, of all the people that you've met and come across in life or work, who do you think's doing human really well? Oh, I have met some incredible humans, really. I've been so blessed. There is a woman named Jean. She works at Virgin Unite, which is a charitable arm of Richard Branson's group. And she is doing extraordinary things from an authentic space, anything from environment to sustainability. She is an excellent communicator, an excellent listener. And um, when I grow up, I want to be Jean. Mm. Mm. Cheers to Jean. Thank you, Michelle, for joining us. It was the best game of charades I've ever played. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm still trying to work thank out what you. that last one was. Sounds like rhymes with exactly. three syllables. Just brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do do human human well. well.